This episode of the Crown Refs podcast is brought to you by RefereeStore.com. To save 15% on all United Attire products, enter Crown15 at checkout. We hope you enjoy this episode and do us one last favor before you listen. Have a great rest of your day. Hi, everyone. It's Gene Steratore, CBS Officials Analyst. Really excited to invite all of you to the Crown Ref Podcast 300th episode. It's my hope that this podcast will pull the curtain back a little bit and walk into some of the intimate detail of being an official in any sport on and off the court or the field. I know this discussion will lead us to a place where the human element of officiating comes to the fore and why officials navigate their personal and professional lives to do what's right for the game. I would also like to take this time to give a shout out to Jerry and Adam with Protector Whistle. They have designed a unique whistle with a quality sound and most importantly, designed to keep the game safer for the players and people on the court and on the field. This unique design has changed the way that the air particles travel through the air and I am really excited to partner with them in the development and actual distribution of the new Protector Whistle. So please, all of you, take time to join in to Crown Ref Podcast 300th episode and let's thank the people of Protector Whistle for doing what's right for the game and making it as safe as possible for all of us. Take care and look forward to seeing and hearing from all of you after the podcast. Thank you for listening to the Crown Refs Podcast. The audio experience for basketball officials. Serve the game. Thank you, because what you're doing right here, Paul, is special, beyond special. And all of you that are involved are equally as special, but that's an extra star on my book, Paul, because I know why you're doing it. It's like it's not a self-serving thing here. It's deeper than that. It shows it's, it's real and authentic. God bless all of you. How's everything going with you? Things are going well. Getting ready to go tomorrow. I'm actually... Uh, going to my first game on location for college football uh, since I started with CBS. So I'm going to Kentucky uh, tomorrow for Georgia, Kentucky Saturday, and then uh, I'll be on the road a good bit over the next three weeks. I'm going to go to the Thanksgiving game naturally with the NFL and then back to the SEC championship and then wrap up college with the Army-Navy game. So it's going to be a good, uh, good three weeks for on location, you know. Is this your first time doing the college with CBS? You know what? When I started, I didn't do it my first year. Uh, I was just NFL and hoops. And then after the first year, they asked if I'd add the SEC game on Saturday. So this is my third year now with them. But I haven't been with uh, with Brad and Gary on location before, which is much better. You know, more intimate. You're in the stadium. You can feel the game a lot better than, you know, in the studio kind of feeling. Well, I appreciate you joining us, man. We had a good talk uh, last week on the phone. Uh, I feel like I really connected with you. You seem like a really genuine, down-to-earth, just good dude. So really um, looking forward to asking you some questions tonight, and then we'll uh, we'll let the rest of the group also chime in and make it interactive. How's that sound? That's fantastic. That sounds great. Uh, first place I want to start, I always like to get set of framework. Um, and hear a little bit about your bio. You have a very interesting bio, seeing that you have 
officiating deeply embedded in your family. So I want to just start with, um, you know, coming up with that pedigree, having siblings, having a dad who was a ref. Why don't you just talk about the impact that they had on you and some of the, you know, advantages that you had growing up in an officiating household? Yeah, well, I appreciate that. My, my father passed away three years ago, and uh, I was one of seven children in a, you know, pretty big Italian family. And uh, my father refed over three decades of Division One college football and basketball. He uh, he was one of the first officials ever hired in the, what was the Eastern Eight at that time, before the Atlantic Ten became the Atlantic Ten, and uh, and actually my dad was part of the Big East staff in their first second year that uh, that they were formed, but as a child growing up in it, it was kind of a it was it was the best of both worlds. We uh, we didn't have much, you know, but. When my dad started ref and really in the early 70s, we uh, he was in the Ivy League level. And ironically enough, you would go to Harvard and Yale games and there'd be 65,000 people at the Harvard-Yale game in 1973 and four, you know. So it was that family weekend vacation where mom would take us to, uh, to the campus on Friday while my dad did his pregame stuff. And uh, we got to walk the campuses of Ivy League schools and and see a lot of historical things, you know, as a child. And then the of it for me and for us, and I know my older brother, Tony, who was a big mentor to me personally too in life and in officiating is, you know, when we went to games, naturally you knew, you know, some of the teams and all that and the players, it wasn't like today. You didn't have 53 games on TV every week. And, you know, but the truth of it is, you know, your dad was on the field, so you were watching the refs. So, you know, then we look back and realized, you know, my dad worked like five Alabama Penn State games with Joe Paterno and Bear Bryant. Uh, he worked six Army Navy games. He worked more Army Navy games than anybody in the history of college football. And, you know, I was on the field with Franco Harris and Lydell Mitchell when they were in college, you know, but the beauty of it was we got to watch someone. And back then in major college football, they only used five officials. So my dad was a back judge deep by himself working sideline to sideline you know so that was that was an amazing time to be you know be a young kid and to see that and be in that environment too I think the environment as I started to officiate then and was fortunate enough to get to those different levels it, that atmosphere was not overwhelming to me because it was kind of it kind of felt like I was going back home you know it was the experiences that I felt and that energy of what 85 90,000 people in a stadium meant uh but I wasn't it, it wasn't odd to us because I think we kind of you know we ran on the sidelines when we were six seven and eight so it was kind of it was really cool that way and and then the basketball portion look when you uh when you could be 13, 14 years old and, and watching Roly Massimino and Louis Carnesecca and Big John Thompson and Rick Patino was at Providence, PJ Carlissimo was at Seton Hall. I used to go to watch my dad interact with the coaches. And, you know, the game, naturally, you watch the game, but because of that 10 minutes to 15 minutes during the course of a basketball game, when the officials do become kind of the spotlight, right? Different than football where the flag happens, the play occurs in hoops. When you blow your whistle, everything stops. And then it was the art of how 
I started to watch them navigate those 10 seconds of time when everybody in the world was watching them and then realized through hundreds and hundreds of hours of communication like that with him driving up and down the highways or sharing that with my brother and realizing that it wasn't a sales pitch during that time, but it was an extremely important part of, of the perception of the game and of you as an officiating group, you know, and, and really learn the value of that, I think, at a really young age. But it was the management part of it, you know what I mean? Like, naturally, there were always a couple plays, like there is every game that you look at as far as judgment, but it became more of a managing thing in that environment. And then watching him navigate both sports, you know, I was just, I was hooked. I was just, I was flat out hooked, you know? Yeah. Let's talk about you getting your start as a basketball official. You know, we're, we're all here because uh, we, we love the, you know, craft of officiating basketball. So I'm yeah. sure your football stories will intertwine with that, but just talk about your come up, you know, when you got started as a basketball official, you know, navigating, from high school to junior college yeah, degree, and then yeah, yeah. That. well believe it or not i started my hoop career at 13 at the ymca and an old gentleman by the name of bumps Nypaver used to give us yoo-hoo chocolate pop if we worked the parochial games in the afternoon so <laughs> my biggest check was a chocolate yoo-hoo pop which was like gold uh but I put a whistle in my mouth when I was 13 years old. I, I, I started at the YMCA. They, they did give us a couple bucks, but I just, I just loved basketball. Uh, it was my dad's love too. I think I played football at the college level. I was a three sport athlete in high school. I loved hoops, uh, but I loved ref and basketball, you know, and I think that back then it was two men. So my, my, my older brother, Tony, who was a 20 year veteran in the NFL back judge and, and was really, really a good basketball official too. We were business partners. We started a business with no money and in a dream and uh, and lived our entire lives pretty much intertwined, you know, but he was my partner in hoops. He hated the travel. He hated the game, like getting to the games. He'd complain the whole way to the games in the car and, and then we'd get in the gym and for that hour and a half, uh, you know, we just fell in love with it again. And it was a great ride home every night. And uh, and we challenged ourselves like constantly on the court in so many different ways, which, you know, kind of I think brothers could do a little more transparent. You would hope that we all could get to that place on the court where, you know, you're, you don't take things personal, you know. Uh, but those uh, those years were phenomenal for me. In the progression where I live in Western Pennsylvania, you know, naturally it was a get an opportunity to division two and three level, the PSAC, the uh, the Pennsylvania D twos back then, and they're still good now, but they were really really good back then. The IUPs, the California University of Pennsylvania, Slippery Rocks, so I saw really good D two basketball uh, for a pretty good swath. And and ironically enough, I I started college basketball when I was twenty five. Uh, but I went and worked women's basketball for the first three years of my career, which was a great experience and, uh, and really set a foundation for me on how to handle coaches at the college level. And it was that bridge of understanding, again, through so many communications and the good fortune I had of someone that was living at the higher levels of realizing the importance of a Division three sporting event, you know, and what pressure really meant.
and I kept that and still continue to preach it because I supervise that level right now in football. Uh, but the pressure of understanding that's a, that's that coach is more than likely that coach's first job, right? Like their first head coaching experience. So that was the eye opener for me into what I really am doing now more than anything when you're trying to recruit and retain young officials and talk about like, why do we do this? You know, what, what really is it that you love about this sport and the game and, and the pressure portion of it, but also the empathy and understanding of all of the individuals that are involved in that game, you know, and, uh, that was really instilled in us very early because those D3 games look at, you know, be 110 people in the gym, uh, two hour drive in the snow, teams three and eight, other teams two and nine, basketball might not be the best, but the pressure of those games and the understanding of that's game day for every one of those athletes. And it's such a special day for all of us. Game day is such an amazing day. But then understanding that, look, at if those coaches get fired at that level because their performance is bad, like, what do they do? What, what is their next step in their journey of life? You know, they're 33, 34 years old. They've been living in, uh, you know, college-like apartments with their young wife, maybe, and a couple young kids not making any money. And now they've gotten their first head coaching job. And if you get fired at 33, 34 years old from a head coaching job at Division Three, like what is your next step in your life's journey? What kind of pressure is that? And then really to appreciate that. So there was this, this really weird bridge of, of understanding and being empathetic to everybody involved. And then the beauty of what I know that I got to experience with it and what I try to convey now a lot to younger people is... Uh, how many of those types of things in life that we learn in these situations, if we could put ourselves there, they cross over to the same things that you wanted kind of do and become as a person, you know, the internal challenges that you put on yourself in those types of environments, and then how you handle things like that. And uh, that became the addiction in the, in the sporting event in game day, uh, which is really cool for refs. We don't have to go into the locker room the day after the game and break the film down with a team that didn't play real well. We get to do it personally, you know what I mean? But for the most part, when, when officials show up in gymnasiums, it's game day. So, uh, you know, but I always understood that and appreciated that. Um, and that really was the, that was the foundation of it. You know, the, the progressions as you move up, the pressures change because of the dynamics of the things. And if you get to the professional level, the pressures change in a different regard, but it's still the same thing. You know what I mean? And it's still the, it's still that same process that you do at the high school level or at the college level, uh, a small college level. So really that does, the rest of it is for public consumption, but the internal portions of it really never changed for me. You know, you just grow with it. Appreciate you sharing that. That was great. Um, I want to go a little practical for everybody that's on the call. We have a lot of high school officials and college officials. Um, so my question is, and I'll, and I'll frame it up. You know, one of the cool things about Crown Refs, and we started this as a platform, as a way to connect officials, like-minded officials from around the world, who absolutely love officiating, want to be part of a team. 
Um, so it's cool to have this universal group because back home on our local board, and this is scattered throughout all over the country, local associations, there's a lot of politics involved. There's um, not a lot of people love officiating and it could really negatively deter an, uh, an official. So I was speaking to a, a ref today who was a little discouraged about having to navigate through all of that, the politics, the not so great partnering, the ego, the veterans who don't want to help the younger officials. So what advice would you have for the high school official who's trying to know, know they want to get to college, but still have to kind of play the game and you know work within that high school landscape? Best question you could have asked. I mean, I can honestly tell you all that really over the last year and a half, uh, as the pandemic started to break and we realized the massive amounts of officials that we lost. And now it's kind of like it's kind of like climate change, right? Like it, there's something obviously happening. We're not smart enough to know exactly what it is. But in this platform, it's happening. The shortage is here. The epidemic is upon us. Uh, okay, so what happens because of that? Honestly, what happens right now from a 10,000 foot level is officials are probably getting fast tracked to a higher level quicker than, uh, than the normal progression, right? So that's not a terrible thing. It's an opportunity. Uh, but see, I lived in an officiating world where I it's not an athletic. The difference between a good athlete and a good official is when you have a good athlete and that athlete's recruited to go to college at the division one level, if you can get three years out of that athlete before they leave, that's, that's their lifespan. Right. But, but officials are like dog years. So every year for an athlete is really like five years of officiating. So I am always really reluctant or apprehensive and nervous about moving a really talented young official too quick because I don't want them to be in that environment where these unexpected things change and he's at the wrong level or a higher level where he hasn't experienced those mistakes or that challenge down at a lower level. And, and now the, the opportunity that was presented, they got there quick, something unexpected really happened a couple of times and all of a sudden this amazing career that has 25 years left in it has been hurt. So there's a patience level. Uh, what I have found out uh, locally and in multiple states now as we've gone around again trying to recruit and retain and change the narrative of what is this officiating experience. Um, you have to get real about it. There's a portion of this just like anything else um, that has political underlying tendencies, right? Um, that that politicalness of officiating comes into play when we as officials, and I say it this way because there are portions of politics, just like portions of life, that we know aren't really being done in the fair and unbiased objective way, right? But we can't change it individually, and it may not be able to change even collectively. Uh, it would be really unique if it could change. So but it falls in the category, just like for me in life is, okay, I can control what I can control. So now if I know that the politics, speaking personally, I don't know if it affects the entire group, my assumption would be it would, especially for those that have been working a while now and and the postseason assignments come out, right? And uh, 
you see people that you know you've been on the field or court with and you're like you know nothing for nothing I don't dislike her or him but they're just not that good but they're getting these semifinal games or they're working the high school championships and you know there's a political undertone to that right so it puts a negative taste in your mouth but it only puts a negative taste in your mouth if you understand or if you've used the postseason assignments as like this check mark on your box of hey is the season successful it's not successful unless i get to the semifinals so we set that that up so again i always looked at that as i have looked at my life before i argued with anybody even if i felt like i was right was like you better look in the mirror first and say what are your shortcomings what don't you do well what didn't you do right these kind of cases what can i control what can i control but I know what I can control. And under the, the categories of what I could control, then I based what I wanted to get out of officiating. And the irony of it, and I know it sounds hard to say probably for someone who's worked the Super Bowl and you know a handful of Sweet 16s and 12 NCAA tournaments and all that kind of fluff and duff that's on your bio, I never roughed a game for the jewelry. All of my NCAA blue patches are on the dryer upstairs in my laundry room because I took them off my shirt when I came home from the tournament and stuck it on the dryer. I knew that those, those opportunities, some of it had to do with my performance that season, I would think. But then I also knew that there was a lot of those selections that were checkmarking other things that the national people had to do, geographics, you know, multiple different things were taking place to get those those assignments. So I never used that as a benchmark as to whether it was a, su a successful season. I used an internal challenge for all of it. You know, why am I doing this and what am I trying to get out of it? Uh, and I controlled that. And uh, so I I think when I really embraced that fact, look, and I I was a National Football League referee for 13 years and was on national TV 60 times a year in Division I basketball, and the announcers would say, tonight's officials are so-and-so, so-and-so, and Gene Steratore, who was also an NFL ref. That didn't go over well in the NFL. When you're an NFL referee, you're not also an NFL ref. Oh, by the way, he also does this. No, you are the NFL ref. So that wasn't a good thing sometimes in the in that world for me to be a two-headed kind of animal right and uh conversely uh the blue bloods that just work basketball and were great at it you know this guy can't be working nfl seasons and then pop in here and be that good at basketball either so we you know we're not going to work at th these higher level things or at the end of the national stuff but i never used that that wasn't what my goal was so i think the real thing is the politics are there you pray to God that they are limited. Uh, we always hope that we are treated in our selections and our evaluations the same way that we're being taught to manage and, and, and handle the games, right? In an unbiased, objective fashion, understanding some imperfection. But at the end of the day, it's not personal. What's right is right and what's wrong is wrong. And all any great official ever wants is the same treatment back. And when that doesn't happen, it's counterproductive to what we really, the real reason why we do this anyway, 
at least one of the big reasons, right? So when that happens, it's very difficult to, to navigate uh, the whispers, the gossip, the locker room talk, um, the evaluation systems, the fact that this generation has almost, I've um, got my son, my son's working a division two basketball game in Minnesota right now. So I watch it streamed. I never saw myself on a tape until I was like at uh, what is now called the colonial level of, that, of football. You know, it was the Yankee conference, but I had never seen myself on film. This day and age, you all get to watch all of your high school games, your small college games on TV. They're graded by video. Um, the grading system, this evaluation category is a very dangerous animal when it comes to the progression of officials unless it's done appropriately, in my humble opinion. If you get grades from an evaluator, look, there's going to be three or four plays in every basketball game that are 50-50 plays, right? So block charge, whatever the play is. And now the evaluator grades it a different way. And you really feel comfortable with what you did and it's a miss or a downgrade. Unfortunately, we're human. So you, when you get your evaluation, what do you do? You look through the evaluation and you go to the right column or wherever that is to see how, where it says, I missed what I missed. You pull the play up on the tape. You look at it. There's three of those five plays are really tough plays. And then all of a sudden the bugs start, right? The little gremlins start. Those three plays, that, that grader went with me on one of them and the other two said, I missed them. And I know I didn't miss that play. So now I'm in this world of, why would they do this to me? Or the human element, the paranoia sets in. Uh, when I, I have now kind of developing even a system, hopefully here in, in Western PA for what is just called an observation that has no ones, twos, threes, your judgment isn't even being graded. I don't care whether you missed the call or not. Really, you're supposed to get the call right. And if your judgment's really not that good, you'll be smart enough to know that maybe this isn't just what I want to do. But it's not whether you got the call right or wrong. It's what position were you in when you made that judgment, right? That's a teachable moment. How did I navigate this? Did I anticipate maybe a second in, uh, before this play occurred? The possibility that that's what would happen on that play coming up. There's ways to teach it. So the politics is never leaving. You can't control the politics. The gossipy stuff where officials talk about other officials is just a bad part of life and one that you should always just remove yourself out of because it doesn't pay back any benefit for you as a human. Uh, and the only advice and the best advice I could give is find these things within your own critiques because all great officials critique themselves way more than any greater can critique you. So live in that world, like you live in that world in your life and be honest with yourself and know, I need to do that a little better. I'll try this next time. And then actually pick two or three things, implement them the next time you're out, almost over-exaggerate them a couple of times when you're on the court, uh, if, you're, if you're aware enough to remember it when you're down there, right? And then make note, mental note, like, at 12 minutes, I had a play and I kind of moved a little more. It was a little more emphatic and almost felt uncomfortable, like maybe I was showcasing it. And then go and look at that play.
And so, you know what, that wasn't over-exaggerating it. You know what I mean? I looked a little more engaged there. There's ways to take that, that mosaic and do it yourself. But I think the more that you do it in that world, uh, it'll become more of a personal thing for you, a quiet thing that you do within yourself. And I think once you start navigating it in that way, the other critiques are good. The politics become way less important because that's not the goal anyway. So you've lessened the value of what it means. Uh, doesn't mean that you can't stay competitive because look, you should want to work the last game of the season, not because it's the championship, but because it's the last time I can work until next year. So that happens to be the last game of the year. So look at it that way. Like if there's a game being played and someone's paying someone to do it, I want to ref it. It'll always end up and be the Super Bowl because it's the last game or the national championship or the state playoff. But never say I didn't get to this point. And the reason I didn't, politics. You know, so-and-so was a brother-in-law, the guy who assigns the games. If you do that, I mean, I hate to say it, partially but that's your fault because you set that as something that you know you can't control and made it too important in your life so keep it in a more personal and quiet place and i think the, the rewards become much deeper honestly gene knows how to answer a question there's a, a lot of great info on that's why cbs only gives me nine seconds paul you know what i mean it's like staring toward just say if it's a catch or not we're not here if this is a true and false thing it's not an essay but i'm going to take advantage when i can <laughs> it's, a, it's a it's a gift to be able to answer long form like that a uh, couple great things i just want to touch on you mentioned you know happiness and not predicating the success of your season based on your playoff assignment, something we've spoken about a lot here. Uh, we got to learn a little bit about the politics from the NFL into, you know, while you were a referee in basketball. Um, we interviewed Dee Kantner about a year ago. She had a great line for um, comparison is the thief of joy. Like your career has nothing to do with anybody else's career. And the sooner you can just control what you can control and focus on yourself, the better off you'll be, the happier you'll be. Um, I think a big thing too with the gossip is is not worrying about people's opinions. Um, you also mentioned breaking down film and you being the most important um, or you being the biggest critiquer of yourself. Right. It's great to have an observer there. It's great to have other officials there, but eventually, you know, and everyone on the call, once you evolve to the level the confidence level, the experience level, you're going to be the only one that matters about your game because you're going to do the most work breaking your film down and just, you know, finding ways to improve yourself. So don't rely on anybody else for that. Um, let, let's go into, you know, I'm big on kindness. You mentioned empathy. These are like big, big picture yeah. traits that are super important because they trickle down into every other part of officiating. We're so big on being a great partner here like and and back to just kindness and not worrying about other people's opinions or talking behind people's back i'm never talking negatively about anybody ever again for the rest of my life i hope i can stay true to that but it's i've had a good streak going of like a few years where not even in my mind i'm yeah. thinking negatively about a person that's right 
and that's a good place to be. And I want everybody to kind of try to get to that. But let's just talk about partnering. Um, I call this like, you know, we're the great partnering network. Everybody on the call, everybody in our platform out of our 215 refs, they're great people. They're great partners. So just talk about um, the importance of being a great partner and, you know, how you were able to show that in your career. Look, that that's where it really got deep for me. Um, you know, and I got to circle back just real quick and I'll try to be brief, but you know, what you just said, um, look, we get put in environments where adults act out of character, completely out of character, right? What, I mean, what is it that we're really doing? Think about what you're doing. Uh, I'm a freak history fanatic and have been my whole life, right? And, and the Greek philosophies and the virtues of happiness and, and empathy and those words to me, I humbly try to navigate those understanding my imperfections, but this environment put those things to the ultimate test. You are in an environment where you have different entities that have different goals. But what I found was in that moment, there has to be something that all of us that are participating in these events share. And something of that that we all share must be bigger than all of us in order for it to be important. Like that's how life rolls. The important things in life are like that. People come from different streets to get to the same road um, but there's something on the same road that pays everybody that comes to it from whatever avenue they come and in this thing we do the game wins so you need to define what the game is and understand what the game means to all participating entities and then it takes you to sometimes why the behaviors are such based on where they're coming from with the game but the game is the ultimate portion that we're all held accountable to right we as officials humbly get the responsibility during that contest to kind of be the keepers of the game within this element. That's one of the biggest roles of being an official. Um, you are the you are there to to rule things unbiasedly, to 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 be as objective as possible, to have a little more leniency toward, you know. Uh, unexpected and unpopular behaviors in the heat of the moment in an intense environment, but you don't take them personally and you need to be able to control yourself to navigate them, to understand they're going to happen, but also have to draw this line within that place of, and I did this so many times to some of the most famous people, but I always did it with my, I never talked to somebody very rarely purposely did I ever talk to someone in a basketball arena without having my hand over my mouth because the words I didn't need shared but most times when it got to that place that conversation was coach I don't mind you verbally lashing every once in a while it doesn't affect me in a personal way I get what you're doing and I know why you're doing it and I'm okay with it but if what you start doing is not good for the game then you leave me no options because I am going to do what's good for the game tonight. And truthfully, even though you want to win and that's what's good for you, you're held accountable to the same thing. I'm keeping you in that window, but I'm going to give you space. I'm not going to be this, hey, I'm the parking lot attendant. Your, your car is on. You know, how many times did we get a ticket going 56 when it's a 55 miler? I'm not that guy. I'm a 65 and a 55. You get a ticket. 
Same in this business, right? I'm going to give you 10 miles within this parameter. Then amongst the fraternity or the team, the third team on the court or the field, um, that's where the beauty of what we do really comes into full effect when everybody is in sync in that moment. And you got to understand, you're going to have plays with veterans as young officials that are in games. Look at, here's the reality. You walk on the court, three officials are standing opposite the bench. The coaches come out with their entourage, right? The band's playing, here comes the six assistants, and then here comes the kingpin. And he hits the court. What's the first thing he or she does? They look across the court. There they are. I recognize two. I don't recognize the third, right? Now we go over, fist bump, handshake, small talk. Great to see you, Sue. Great to see you, Jim. What's your name again? And now, as fate would have it, we're new. First five minutes of the game, I've got a tough call. I'm the, I'm the one no one knows. And we look over, and this veteran is standing next to a coach. And it doesn't look like the conversation is in defense of me. It looks like we're siding away from me. That happens in this game at times. It's not a good thing, um, but it occurs. Don't take that, again, those are the challenges. Keep staying to your place. Sometimes it's hard to talk to a veteran official about that if you see it happen. Usually it doesn't happen as often as, as, as uh, you know, you hope those, these are all exceptions, right, to the negative portion. Uh, look, the last four years of my career in the Big Ten when I left the Big East, when it downsized and, and really only took four or five ACC games, I, I stayed in the Big Ten consortium because I didn't want to fly one night and go to the next big game the next night. My body was declining. But the truth of it is, if I was at Michigan State on a Thursday, I wanted to stay in the same hotel for my body's sake, but I also wanted to work at Eastern Michigan the next day because I wanted two young officials with me. Um, because of my upbringing and one of the reasons why I retired kind of in an official's world in the prime of your career at 55 uh, was there was something bigger to this for me. It wasn't, I, I, I celebrated my personal uh successes with the people in my life that sacrificed a lot more than I did, right? My children um, and the days alone. And, and we enjoyed those personally, but officiating is never to anybody in my world, at least from where I come from, the officiating portion of what you've attained is wonderful, but you have never come full circle in this fraternity until you start giving back to the fraternity that brought you up and whether it was a you know a father or it didn't matter you know my biggest mentors even though my brother was that huge and my dad was a great role model they weren't related to me but they were older guys and gals that you'd get in the car with that's where this thing happens for all of you young guys and gals I will tell you um uh, Get in the vehicles with your partners as quickly as you can and get to get to that drive together every time you can for as long as you can drive together to the event and then drive out with them. And if you're close enough to home, I'm not an alcohol consumer, 
but I learned an awful lot in booths and bars where guys were sitting with salt shakers and ketchup bottles and talking about positioning and plays and learning how to officiate and talking about the coach and ref engagements that were taking place throughout that game. Um, there was so much value in that fraternity. And then the awareness on the court. Look, there's times when you have a hard play. Uh, and how do you navigate that hard call when a coach is misbehaving? And, and truthfully, you don't go opposite the court after you make that call, right? You tell that trail official that's next to the table after you finish presenting your foul to them, uh, go across. I'm going to stay here right now because I'm going to give this guy or gal 30 seconds of time right now and have this not confrontational conversation, but I'm going to manage that portion when officials are on the same page on their judgments and consistency, naturally the game goes much better. Uh, when they understand the managing part that the crew is doing because the collective is so much more important than the individual and in, in anything in life, that, that's the essence of what makes this thing go so well. And, uh, and that's what you have to always try to require, right? You must do that. And sometimes you'll be the young one on the game and then very quickly, two nights later, you're the referee that's got to handle two or three other officials that might not be that experienced. So live the roles, but continue to work within that team, that, that fraternity. It's, it's, it's when the special stuff takes place, you know. Thank you for that answer um let me be a great partner myself and i want to pass the ball over i know we have a lot of people in the chat that want to ask questions so let me ship it over to connor he's uh from ohio but he's going to college right now in western pennsylvania so maybe after the call i can connect you to connor why don't you oh, nice. on mic and uh say hello to gene Hey, Gene. Uh, thanks for being here tonight. Uh, yeah, I, I'm a freshman at, uh, Waynesburg, at Waynesburg University and an official, obviously. Uh, my question to you is, how did you balance being an NFL referee and an NBA, or not an NBA, a college basketball official at the same time? Because the big thing for me I'm struggling with is trying to balance college athletics and uh, pursuing my dream of officiating. It's a really good question. And you know what? Um, I realized really young because I was a three sport athlete. And then when the playing days ended, I realized that once I started officiating, what I really loved about being an athlete naturally was game day. But I think what I loved more than anything was navigating as many plates in the air as I could have in the air, right? So when you're a student, you have your studies, you might be in a relationship, you might have a side job and then I'm refing. So you're navigating all these things. And when you're refing, uh, your body needs to be in good physical condition. It's important to keep your body in physical condition, not for vanity's sake, but for longevity. It's important to eat the right way. It's important to get as much sleep as you can. That was what athletes do every day. I never quit being an athlete. Um, I will be honest with you, Connor. Uh, I, I wasn't hired in the Big East in basketball because I was refereeing in the Big East in football for like seven years. 
and that supervisor didn't think it was good to have both. And then when I got to the NFL, he had told me, uh, you know, it wasn't good to be in the NFL and work in the Big East. And then I became a referee in the NFL and it wasn't good to be a referee in the NFL. And then the NFL was like, are you going to ref basketball too? You're going to be really visible. Uh, I hate to say this, but the fact that people kept telling me that I couldn't do it, it's what it was. That was it. That's all they needed to say to me was, it can't be done. And, and my older brother was one of the biggest proponents of it because he was worried about, you know, I mean, exhaustion. I was a single dad uh, for the last 18 years. The kids are in their 30s now running a business, uh, working 85 Division I games and, and prepping for 25 hours a week for the NFL game each week. And it was like, it can't be done. It's not humanly possible. That was all it needed to be said. Like, and it wasn't to walk around to say how I do that. It was all personal. It was like, can it be done? I don't know. But if I don't try it, I'm never going to know. Uh, so it was that which became, you know, uh, again, a real quiet personal thing that it was like, give me more just because I want to see where, where is the point that I'm, I'm like, okay, this is it. I can't do any more. I have to be honest. I didn't, I never got to that place. You know, I retired. Um, but, but it was some of that. Um, but also understanding one thing for sure, uh, because of that decision, uh, the responsibility to be so on point then, right? because you can't work at New England on Sunday and then be at Michigan State on Monday and not be ready. Because the minute that you are just human and slack, the reason why you're slacking is because your head's still in New England, right? So it was another layer of pressure. It was another layer of, you know, if you're just regular old human guy tonight, they're coming down on you because of your exposure. So it was even like, Okay, put the mic, you know, look at when you referee in the NFL, real quick to go back to grading, you are graded seven times on every play from seven different cameras. Okay, when I was in the peak of NFL career 15 years ago, if you had seven mistakes during the season, then you probably weren't getting a playoff game, just seven mistakes. That's no calls, that's incorrect calls, that's incorrect judgment. Seven mistakes in a season, graded seven angles. When you're getting downgraded by the sky cam that's on a wire, like how am I gonna see the hold? The only camera that found the hold was a wire hanging 10 feet above the stadium. I would text back in my comment answers. If you hang me from a wire, I can see it, you know, because the grade didn't bother me. Uh, you know, but it did bother me if I looked at that play and thought you didn't read run on the play side when that came and you didn't work from the inside out from the guard to the tackle tight end gap. You quickly went wide thinking it was a pass play and went to the tackle gap and your guard held and you missed it. That bothered me because I wasn't programmed properly for that one and a half seconds for my muscle memory to do what it should have done. That was on me then. And I might not have been downgraded. It didn't matter. Um, but, 
maybe I bit off too much at some point in life. Uh, but for me, I did it, you know what I mean? So I think it's in that world where you say, you know, how did you do it? Um, it really meant that I had to really be unbelievably efficient in how I navigated the 18 or 19 hours I was awake every day and could never neglect the most important things in life along that process. And neither of those things were football and basketball, right? It was my faith. It was my family. It was my child and children interactions so far in a different category. Below that, though, it did become this because this was what you decided to do. People's careers were on the line based on things you might decide. So preparation became the ultimate uh, challenge for me. So when I was in hotels five days a week in basketball at one o'clock after two flights got you there after getting up at 4.30 in the morning, from one to four, you put an hour and a half of NFL film on and watch the teams that you were gonna ref the next two weeks on film. So you could see their tendencies, their trends, what your matchup was going to be. So in that one and a half hours, I devoted to that. And then shower, right? Solid at 3.30, get back your head back into where you're going in two and a half hours because the ball's a different shape and get focused on this matchup tonight. And it was in that world that you lived it. You can navigate it. It requires an amazing OCD level of organization. And uh, and then it becomes really fun. You just have to be careful that in, if you have a false start on Sunday, you don't say traveling, right? Or you don't do something crazy. But uh, that, yeah, that that's kind of how I think you can do that. You know, you can do it. Uh, and then it's that internal thing, like, see how much can you do? Thank you, appreciate that. Yes. If Gene can do it, Connor, you can do it. There's your permission. Right there. We all can do it if Gene right? can do it. I swear. I promise you. <laughs> no, but Connor, you're doing great work, man. Just um, you know, stay humble, stay patient, and you know, you're you know, you're a college basketball player and about to be a college ref. So, Connor, you play at Waynesburg now. College baseball, Paul, but yeah, well, my employees of my company live in Waynesburg. Oh, so, really? Yeah, you're 20 miles up 79 from me right now. Yeah. Uh, if you need any help in anything like that locally, in any ways, you reach out to me. Paul has my email address and you feel more than free to share that address with anyone on this call and anything that relates to that. Uh, you're you're in my backyard though, so okay. anything I can Thank do, you. Thank don't you. ever hesitate to reach out to me, man. Okay, appreciate it. Yep. it. Great stuff. Let's stay in Ohio. Going to go to Tate Fishman. Tate, thanks for joining us. Thanks for coming on the call tonight, and uh, ask away to Gene. So first, like Connor, I just want to say thank you for being here, and also like Connor, I'm a younger official, just kind of getting started in this. Obviously, I've big aspirations to have this as my career one day and do this at the highest level possible. But obviously you have to start locally. You have to start with the local leagues, the junior highs, the high schools. So my question to you was, what are some of the things that you did when you were starting off as a younger official to kind of on it and on, this could be on and or off the court. 
What yeah. were some of the things you did as a younger official to not only gain trust of your partners, but also as from your local assigners, the athletic directors and other people like that who can have the power to give you games or not? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, you hope the strength of the chapters and the traditional senses work the way that they should work, right? I mean, I tried to work every single day. Uh, I know when I started, you know, I tried to get finished with my job at 3.30 so I could get to a junior high gym. Uh, and at that time, get the $15 for the junior high game tape, you know, was 15 <laughs> bucks. And, uh, and then hope I could get a JV game that was less than 45 minutes away so I could double dip and then work the JV game and then kind of hang at least for the first half of the varsity game to watch and see how the big guys and girls worked uh, and to feel that environment and see what they were doing. Um, and then, you know, I was fortunate back then and things are a little different now. The chapters handled a lot of the assignments and they really did take care of their chapters and they had enough games. Uh, around this area now, you know, there's assigners that do five classifications and they're not involved in the local chapter. So how do I get in the big 56 or those types of things? How many camps do I go to? Am I wasting my money at camp? You know, I got a tag on my back that says 186 and somebody's looking at a sheet to remember my name. Am I wasting my time and money here? You know what I mean? So you guys are faced and girls are faced with more challenges in that regard, but, but, but get as many reps as you can get. Um, always take advantage, even if it's a playground game in the summer on, okay, I'm going to work on my positioning at center this entire day because the games aren't really that good or the pressure's not really there. Uh, Always when you work those levels and go even down to the grade schools where the, the boys and girls, like they double dribble a couple of times and they walk and, you know, you just can't call everyone. And mom is like, you know, losing her mind or, or dad's yelling at you because Susie just, you know, quit call. She's walking. Can't you call it? Um, that That's uh that's part of it. Never, never internalize it, but, but give yourself a couple things. And most of them are judgment things during those times on how you can hone your stuff to get better. Right. Master, master how you handle a play when you're lead and you have a foul and two players go to the floor on the baseline. And now what am I going to do for the next nine seconds of that play and simulate it in your mind, even though there's nobody really at the table. Okay. But like these are the tips in that scenario I just gave you, you pause, you call the foul, you finish the play, you look confident, strong, you're not there, not overly excited. Maybe you gave a quick prelim, but you finished the play. Now you have these seven to 10 steps of life that are going to take you out to where you're going to give that foul call to the table, right? So the table, really, you haven't finished the foul until you're done giving the administrative portions. You're still in control. In those seven to 10 steps, if you walk the first four of those steps from the baseline out and then start to run, the optic is that you're lazy and you're hurrying to get to a place you should have been to because you walked and then ran. I mean, these are subtle things that change the dynamic of what you look like to the fans and to the people that assign games. But if you pause after that play, finish that play, 
and I'm going to briskly, really briskly run for the first four steps and then gear down into a fast walk to stop and present, then you look like that young man's hustling, but not over hustling. He's fully in control. And then when you're finished, you point to where we're inbounding it or if we're shooting it, you turn in two or three steps early that are quicker than the last three put this whole thing in a completely different dynamic and you've done nothing other than just present what you finished, right? And then put it one more thing into it. So now you have that same play and now you run four and you walk three or finish. And right before you're getting ready to tell the table, it's 22, that coach who was yelling that, that you missed it when you blew the whistle. And then when you started jogging, he's moving up to his box and yelling again. Right before you present to the table, you like stop and look at him or her like and check them down. No confrontation, not demeaning to you, but respect. I'm not finished yet. So when they start, you missed it, you missed it. Now they come up, their hands are up and you're not. And right at this point, you go and they stop. And the optic to the world is you didn't do anything yet except look, but you shocked them. And then you finish your play right? And then you tell that trail, go across. And then you walk right there. And you say, top, that's a block. You missed it. That's a charge. You missed it. Coach, if it's what you said, and it's not what I saw, then you're right. I missed it. But you putting your arm ups tonight is not good for the game. Now, wait until I'm finished at the table. Treat me with the respect I'm treating you. And you do it with him on your back shoulder or her on your back shoulder, not even nose to nose. That optic in those 12 seconds will cause people to look and go, I don't know if this young man got this play right or not. But one thing I know is he's comfortable and confident in his skin. He's going to be able to do this business. That other assigning stuff, right? Get to the people that do the assigning. Let them know when you're available. Go out every single day and try to get better on some little nuance, even if it's just that 10-second interval I just told you about and hone it and take every piece of your puzzle and do that. Listen, I will promise all of you on this call now, I have been in nine states in the last eight months here doing this recruit and retain. You're all gonna have more games than you want if you wanna work this business and you can work it because there aren't enough of us. So that should never be a problem. And I pray to God it's never a problem for anyone. Um, and, and I will say this to you too. In the beginning, they'll pro it'll probably feel like, man, I should be, I, I'm ready now. I'm ready now. And you probably are. Once you get on that stage and, you're, and, and you succeed, observers, supervisors, and assigners, they need people that they know they can put on one of these eight games on Tuesday and know my phone's not going to ring. So when you can officiate, you'll get games because guys and gals that assign games, they want people that can work games so coaches don't call them 10 minutes after that game's over and they have to be on the phone for 30 minutes. So you'll control your destiny in some regards that way. Just don't get discouraged when it feels like it's going slower than it needs to. You know what I mean? Uh, and continue to communicate. Camps are great. Uh, if they're not overcharging you or if they're not putting you in a position to say the only way you're going to get in my leg is if you come to my camp. You know what I mean? 
There's a lot of great camps that teach out there for the right reasons. And at your young age right now, you go to camps that tell you where you need to be on the court and where your eye muscle movement needs to take you to be in a position to anticipate. These are the top seven things that happen when I'm slot opposite of the power of the ball. And I'm going to play and look in those that area weak side and see what's happening on those plays that most consistently happen. People teach that in summer camps. People teach that. And when your game increases, it's just like an athlete. They'll find you. I promise they'll find you. Thank you, Gene. Terrific stuff. Let's take it to Maryland. We have John Nally. John, say hello to Gene. Hey, Gene. Uh, just wanted to say thanks again for taking the time to uh, to talk to us. This has been really awesome. And uh, I know for me personally, you're someone I've uh, always looked up to as somebody who's been able to officiate at the highest level in both football and basketball, because um, I'm a two-sport uh, official also with football and basketball. Um, so my question is similar to Connor's um, in terms of being able to navigate, you know, trying to climb up both ladders, so to speak, at the same time, and, you know, trying to see how high you can get. Do you feel like um, it's any different now than when you are coming up trying to navigate that world? And um, is there any advice you would give to somebody who's, you know, doing the same thing, trying to trying to get up both ladders? I would say do it as long as you can. Um, uh, the world has become more of a specialist kind of world, right? Even the high school athletes, they don't play three sports anymore. They're one, one athlete in this position. That's what I do. That's it. Uh, there are so many advantages to these two sports, at least because I know I experienced them. I learned an awful lot about how to work football because of what I learned in basketball. Uh, but I also learned an awful lot about how to navigate basketball based on what I was experiencing in football. Um, so to me, they bridged very well and played off of each other very well. I felt real comfortable and I was a downfield official when I first started. And those plays felt like uh, POV plays. Uh, they felt like a little body contact without a lot of displacement. I was categorizing actions from both sports and finding where they crossed over. I was taking the fact that a field, a football field was 100 yards long and 54 and a third yards wide. And that span of being able to have to use your periphery and have depth and space as your friend in football because the further you got away, provided you could feel it, you could see the ball over there, but you were supposed to be watching the blocking, but you knew where the runner was. When I would leave a football field and then go on a basketball court, it was like, holy heck, this whole court's in my periphery all of a sudden. You know what I mean? So that played well for me. I used those to, I hope, uh, realized where there were differences, but also realized where they complemented each other really, really well. And, uh, and I really, I really wanted to stay involved in both because of that reason that, that like from the pure officiating portion of it, that's why I really wanted to stay in that, you know, um, because they, they were really different, 
but they also had a lot of bridges, a lot of bridges. Uh, the ability to have more verbal communication on a football field, right? And have things said to you uh, that you could let go. But in a basketball arena, you almost had to address because the people nine rows up heard every word he just said or she said. Uh, I used to get guys that would say, look, man, you can't let Izzo say that kind of stuff. You know, like it's not, doesn't look good. And I was thinking like, yo, 20 hours ago, Bruce Arians was 10,000 times worse than that. Like this wasn't even that bad to me. And I would laugh at my hoop guys and go, you're really guys are really thin skinned. I got to take you out on this football field when you have 10 guys screaming at you saying stuff like, and you got to learn to let this go and not take this, use that like to an advantageous place. Right. And, uh, so in those regards, I thought it helped really, really a lot um, in, in, in that awareness element, uh, which honestly, you know, when you first start, you, you've got to get the judgment things. Heck, you get, you, you have panic attacks about, am I going to get my hand up and point, you know, out of bounds plays are harder than you think until you do it. You know, they're hard. People laugh. Like I laugh at my youngest now. I said, the only two plays I'm worried about you missing now are like out of bounds plays in goaltending, you know, because, you know, you, you guys were so good on the couch, but it's different when you're down there. Uh, but but those those elements of of taking some of the nuances that you can apply to both, they'll, they'll feed each other really, really well. And I think the biggest challenge that you may have is as you progress in life, and I don't know where you are personally, but it's a time element. Uh, it's time away from those that you love. It's having someone that doesn't have to be there and cheerleading for you all the time, but understands your passion. Uh, and then you also understanding that you're going to leave 120 days out of the year because of this passion I'm chasing. But I'll be damned if I'm not giving you these 245 other days like of undivided attention because you're allowing me to experience my passion. And never forget that portion. Like my ex-wife, who was wonderful, sat on bleachers forever, pregnant with kids, watched games. You know what I mean? She never did my laundry, not my basketball laundry. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not coming home. You know, you leave in a football world. Think about it. You have a wife or a significant other that works five days a week. It's Friday night. The kids are home. You're putting stuff in your bag and leaving. I'm working a high school game Friday night. I get home at 11.30. I fill my football uniform in the laundry if I work college football because tomorrow morning on Saturday, her day off with the two kids, you packed your bag at eight in the morning and drove three hours for a college football game that started at one o'clock and you pulled in home at eight o'clock Saturday night. Sunday's like the day of rest. You better take care of the house Sunday because she's going to work Monday. You know, you must always have the empathy and understanding to realize what the people that are in your life are sacrificing for that if you're in that position, right? So that's the personal part of it. The other side, use those elements where you can bridge them. You'll get better at both sports as a result of it. I'll answer short like that from now on, Pete. I'm just following. I'm just going to do that.
Like, well, I'll do. How about more Billichek, less Hockley? <laughs> I'm gonna break out the shot clock, Gene. Yeah, get the shot clock. Be I'll call you back. Hold on one second, real quick, Andrew. How was your game? Great. Are you on the road? Yeah, give me a shot when you can. I sure will. Be careful. Love you, bye. Now the real part of reffing, right? Game's over. Three-hour drive to the next city, an hour and a half away from where the next college game is tomorrow at 5. So now you worry about them being on the road from 9 o'clock till midnight somewhere in North Dakota. You know? This life we live, guys and gals. <laughs> Let me just share uh, one new idea we've had on the, um, on our mentor platform is to we have a, a voice channel called the pre and post game commute, and it's intended for officials to be able to start their own call, maybe uh, on a way to a game or driving home from a game. They just notify people in the group, like, "Hey guys, I'll be um, you know on channel thirty six in five minutes." would love to chat and then there's just community members that are just there being great partners for support so it's been two weeks old but it's been really helpful so far oh that's a great idea you're putting you might be putting 15 people in the car driving home from the games mm. you know share and post game stuff that's a wonderful idea that's great Thank you. Um, when I published uh, that you were going to be joining us, I also said, if you're interested in a guest pass, you know, send me a message. So we had one person that sent me a message, uh, Carl. Uh, Carl, let you unmute, but you got to join our group after, okay? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, thanks for joining us, Carl. Why don't you say hello to Gene? <laughs> thanks, Paul. I appreciate the guest pass. Um, out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, um, Gene, thanks for texting the questions. I appreciate it. Um, been doing this for about 15 years now. Um, started working with with my dad when when I was 18, so I've been kind of growing up with it. I, I remember taking pencil and paper tests with him when I was a young kid. Um, so that's kind of my back backstory into officiating. Um, I want to get a little bit more specific here, though. the The last couple of years, my, the main focus for me has been um dealing with the coaches and the confrontational aspect of things um it's been been one of my top goals the last three or four seasons i've been fortunate to get a, a pretty healthy playoff schedule um so i feel like i've been getting better at it but i just kind of want to get your two cents worth of anything that you've done to help yourself in that regard or articles you've read or tips you've heard from anybody else in regards to, to managing the conflict with coaches and or players in that regard. Tell me what parts of that you, uh, you, fo you want to focus most on in your own self-evaluation. What parts of it do you feel like, boy, I don't know where to go to next now when that happens? I think a lot of it stems to, um, like you had talked about before, it's the um, it's, it's a confrontation after the 50, 50 call or the coach that doesn't agree with anything that you're going to say throughout the rest of the night. Um, locally, I've been able to stick within a lot of the same conferences. So I think I've generated a face of, you know, familiarity. So that's not too much of a concern with me, but being able to, um, have that short 20 to 30 second conversation if time allows um yeah. that's where i think i struggle and kind of stumble over what um my true knowledge base is um so you know i pride myself on knowing rules and and some of the verbiage that can get you out of a situation like that yeah. but i still feel like i can can do a lot better and and just want to have any sort of advice from you it'd be great 
here's here's one way. I, 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 there's a couple things I could tell you real quick. A lot of the communication in a basketball setting that I did was when the ball was live and I was slaughter trail on the bench side. Nobody was watching. The world watches the ball. The world doesn't watch off the ball. At the higher levels, TV doesn't show the coach talking to an official uh, while the play is happening because they're not going to leave the ball. The moment that you know that the play is stopped and I have to have this engagement, this verbal judo in this window of time, which is going to have a big effect on how people uh, perceive me possibly or the game or the condition. Um, there are so many different ways. And, and here's what's challenging is we're all different personalities, right? Uh, my smirky smile that meant I really was upset with you kind of uh, was the way I handled that. I was maybe more of an A than more passive person. Um, but but there's no like, this is how you do it because we're just different creatures. And, but one thing we have to all be able to do is have a communication level, right? Uh, I, I <laughs> that's it's such a good question, but, and I could give you like 20 different one-liners. Uh, but I don't know if they would apply. Um, but for the sake of it, listen, one of them was uh, what I was just said earlier there, you know, it's a hard play, you know. And I, I, I used to say that. I'd turn and look and say, hard play. Hard play, coach. Hard play. Yep. He wasn't there. I, I felt he was there, coach. I mean, that's what I felt. Boom. Well, you know what? You haven't been right all night. I'm working at it, though, coach. I'm working at it not uh block charge play go to the table all right i'll stay on this side coach the re uh the defender was facing his opponent and retreating coaches don't know the rules when we start quoting rules to coaches this is the nerdy ref that's really not an athlete right like unfair to say uh they don't know the rules empathize with what's he really trying to do engage me yeah on a hard play yeah hard play wasn't that hard you were in a different spot than me maybe i should have been out here if it looked easy from here coach it wasn't that easy from where i was it was a hard play you know um when they when you go up and down the court four times and they have said something every single time right? They're out there. They're about to wake up here in the next month. They haven't woken up yet. They're just getting in their rhythm again. I would go and be slaughter trail next to them and there's da da da. And I would go in the, while the ball was going, coach, I'm mediocre at best when no one's talking to me all game. If you keep talking, coach, I'm not even going to get fit. I'm not even going to be half as good. And I'm already struggling. Self-deprecating, little humor, little human element and then if they decide to take that and weaponize that against you then you respectfully look at them and say we can't talk now then i'm giving you the hand i can't talk i'm not talking now i've given you this opportunity to engage me i'm letting you know i'm listening to you
I'm not demeaning the game or downplaying the, the value of each decision. But if you're going to constantly just offer your opinions, coach, I can't, I would say this, coach, every time I come down, you have an opinion. If I answered every opinion that comes every time I blow my whistle, coach, this game will last six hours because there's 10,000 people got an opinion right now. I know yours is a little more important. I can't listen to opinions all night. Things like that. You know, I'm, I'm in the human element. Same other position. Tough play. You really feel like you got this play right now. And maybe 30 seconds early, you said, coach, if it happened the way you said it happened and not it's not what I saw, then I missed it. That's one line. Now we play two more minutes. We got another play. I nailed this one. He's acting or she's acting the same way. Now when I come out, I'm not this guy who's giving your, you the back and forth. Now I'm going to look and go, not that play, not that one. That one I'm good with, okay? Like it or not, because I know one thing. You're watching that get that play in about an hour, and I'm going to tell you now, respectfully, with a little more authority now, You've overstepped your line. That one I got right. Now we're going to just keep playing. And I'm leaving. I'm not coming over to you now. You've disappointed me now. Right? You're not being combative to me. I'm disappointed in your behavior. Because you're acting like an adolescent. And I'm trying to pacify you a little and give you rope. And now you're disappointing me because you've gone over the edge of your own behavior. And it would demean the game if I continue to let you interrupt this game that way without saying it to him. You can do all of these things non-verbally with your own movements. Sometimes it's, oh, other times it's, and then you go back over and go, I think I missed that. I used to walk over and the coach would go, Gene, and I go, I missed it. And he goes, no, you didn't. I said, yes, I did. Don't tell me when I miss them or not. And then pat me on the rear end. And I missed it. But it's in that world, right? And now you're also successful, you know, and, and that's fantastic. So remember this. You've been 15 years working postseason. This year and the next month, you're going to walk out on the court with the young lady or guy who they don't know at all. And when you go over and shake those hands and turn around, you're going to start back across. And that coach is going to go, Carl, come here. Who, who is this? Right? Good official coach, going to be really good. You know, bang, three calls the new official has, missed two of them. Coach is not happy. Now you tell that official, go across, I got it. You put your hands up. Work with the work with her coach. She's working hard. I'm, I hear you. I hear you. She's working hard. Be fair. Be fair. Leave. Protect it. Protect the fraternity there. Save it. And they're not long conversations. Basketball is beautiful. It's a hit and miss game. All you got to do is survive the next seven seconds because guess what? 10 seconds from now, they're yelling about something else. New shiny object. That's a hit and miss. Boop, boop, gone. Boop, boop, Teddy Valentine, master, master. Boom, boom, gone. Next subject. You know what I mean? Gene, that play under the hoop, coach, if I was watching under the hoop, I would have missed this half elbow. You didn't even see her at the free throw line. What happened down there? Gene, the play. Where, coach? Where? Down there. Where? Coach, what? Never. Down there. Coach, if I'm looking down there from 28 feet, I would have missed. 
Your guy almost got decapitated. I was right on this one. Go on, play's gone. Paul's in play. You know what I mean? And so are you going. I'll swing back to you. We'll have a bunch of free throws tonight. Then I'll walk over. And you look and go, whew, you're killing me tonight, man. You know? That's Thank how you, you do it. That's how I you appreciate do that. You know what I'm saying? That's how yeah. you do it. You, you, you shot, shot, boom, move. I used to get downgraded twice a game and say, Sterator, why did you rotate? The ball wasn't across the 10-second line. I would say, because I was on the bench side for nine possessions in a row, and I'm getting across the court. Downgrade me for rotating too quick, but I needed a break for 40 seconds. You know. <laughs> That's really helpful. I, I appreciate it. That doesn't get me all pumped up. I'm ready to go work tonight. <laughs> I want to go work. Thank you, Gene. <laughs> thank you. Gene, thank you for giving us permission to call the coaches adolescent. Do that. <laughs> that's only amongst us paulie <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes you have to talk to them like a child because their behavior comes to the child level and i think as long as you observe that then the behavior becomes less dramatic because you're really looking and going this multimillionaire is acting like he's 15 right now I almost feel bad for it. And I'm not taking this personal, but look at that. You know, and your eyes can your eyes can convey that message a little bit without your mouth moving. I wish they would have mic'd you up back in your day. <laughs> they did three times, but that'll know if that's coming out for a while. <laughs> I need those I need those clips, Gene. <laughs> uh, we got a couple a uh, few more questions through the chat. Cameron from Virginia. Cam, welcome and uh say hello to Gene. Hey, Gene, thanks again for being here. Uh, like Paul said, I'm from Virginia. This will be year two for me um, doing high school. I did some intramurals for five years in uh, undergrad and grad school. So uh, really enjoying it so far. Um, you touched a little bit on coach interactions. Um, I think you mentioned Tom Izzo, Bruce Arians. Can you um, talk about any coaches, whether uh, football or basketball, any coaches that were particularly difficult to deal with or you had fun interactions with or just kind of any any um you know stories from coaches or talking with coaches in your games i uh uh you know i never really felt like any were overly overly difficult to be honest with you cameron um there were times when i knew they were unfair right i had more difficulty with the ones that didn't talk at all those ones, I didn't know where they were coming from. I, I wanted more Izzo's and, uh, and less maybe of like the, 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 uh, the Tony Dungy type of an individual, not that he wasn't intense by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it was harder to read that. I'd ha I wanted more Bill Cower, Bruce Arian stuff, you know what I mean? Because I felt real comfortable in that space and football provided me that comfort because you could say an awful lot more on a football sideline. Hey, I was the worst roughing and running into the kicker referee in the history of football because when punters had spin around after just getting touched, I was like, wanted to give the flop signal. Like, I'm not calling it, you know? And there was a night in Arizona where the punter got bumped and spun and like it was a soccer game, flailed out like I was supposed to come out with the red card. 
And I called nothing, you know, and Arians went completely nuts. What are you doing? I said, that's a flop. It's a flop. It's a flagrant one. It's a, it's a, it's a class A technical. What do you mean? What do you want to do? And he would look and go, you, you're going to be kidding me. Because, you know, running into the kicker is a penalty. And I looked and I went, oh, shoot, I didn't think about that, Coach. You're probably right. You know, those last three plays you called that were really bad or we wouldn't have been punting, you know, and I would leave. But I also had a relationship. Uh, so I did, I did, I, I shouldn't say that that would be something I want you to use in your second year, Cam. Um, but, but every single coach, uh, I can tell you, like, I, they just were all, all the engaging things to me were, uh, were experiences to learn from, but always to take in the most positive sense, even when they acted in a very adolescent way. I never really, and I mean this, after 3,000 basketball games, I never gave someone a tech. They really didn't. They gave themselves the tech, and I never caught a technical foul with any conviction more than it was just a personal foul because I had so much of a different callous shell around my body that I was, it wasn't, it wasn't ever going to get personal for me. Even if I knew they personally disliked me, that wasn't my fault. That was their fault. You know what I mean? So I just never let that, I never let that get inside of me. And for that reason, I think what it allowed me to do was to accept this stuff and be able to navigate it in kind of almost uh, now, I never miss plays on purpose so I could have the engagements, don't get me wrong, but but I never felt like those were difficult things for me. I I, I enjoyed them. You know, I, I just did. I thoroughly enjoyed them. Uh, I used them as learning experience. And I was wrong many, many nights. You know what I mean? Wrong. Uh, never go into a coach's huddle on a timeout, Okay. When you go into a team's huddle on a timeout, if he's even if he said something really bad and spun and got in his huddle quick because he knew he was about to get teed, don't follow him in that huddle. Understand what that huddle is to him. That's his pride of wolves, and he is the king dog in that huddle. You can't walk in there and invade that space. But you, by rule, at the first buzzer, are supposed to get that team out of that huddle, right? Because they need to be on the court ready for that second horn. And if you're if you're who you are and you were on the opposite side of the court and you had a half interaction and it didn't go well and he half waved you before he went in his huddle and you were like right on the cusp of, I should have whacked him for that. But I didn't, but I can't let that go right now then switch and get on that side of the court. And when that first horn is, you should be standing right outside his huddle and get right in there. First horn, let's go, let's go. And hope he gets up because now he's cooled for 50 seconds and I'm going to win these last 12 before we put the ball in play. And everybody's really not watching me right now with him. And now I'm going to get these 12 seconds. And by those 40 seconds, buy yourself some time to navigate that. That's where you'll hone your skill of the management. And that can't be taught from me to you completely. That's your engagement and how do I get in that space and feel like I did something productive there. I didn't get back at him or her. I did something productive for the game, for the game, you know? 
And it's in those windows, then you'll end up with a million stories of your own. That'll be way more exciting than mine. Gene, you got a lot of um, mental toughness and thick skin and, you know, emotional stability to be able to navigate, you know, the reactions from the coach. And just a very important point that you just mentioned, we don't want to go into the coach's huddle during the timeout. That is not the time, as you mentioned. But right when it's over and they've decompressed and they've, you know, spoken to their team for 60 straight seconds, they have no ammunition left. That's their best time to be a good listener for the message that you want to deliver. Right. So it's absolutely the best time to That's when you have to manage the coach there in those 10, 15 seconds. Um, Cody from Phoenix. Cody, welcome to the group. Thanks for joining our call. You can unmike. Yeah, thank you for that, uh, Paul. And uh, Gene, thank you for being here tonight. Like Paul said, I'm from Phoenix, Arizona. It's a frosty 60 degrees. Like I told I want to hear that, Cody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I told him all this afternoon it was 70 degrees and chilly. God but, bless. Uh, but uh, Gene, I just have one question. Um, I've heard a lot of guys, you know, even myself, we have very habitual things we do before the game, and even after the game to get our minds right. And it sounds like over the years, you know, that built a, a level of mental toughness for you. Um, what are some of the things that you kind of did to, to get your mind right for, you know, we try to treat every game as a game but you know those big games where you know you're gonna have all the cameras all the lights and everything on you how did you get your mind ready for those i studied every game at that level at that level i would tell you um i i watched every team two days before those games i found 30 minutes to watch their games i talked to my assigner my big 10 basketball designer rick boyages was an amazing gem for me for basketball because he was a coach for 20 plus years. So that conversation the day before a game was him telling me, this is the way this team is runs their offenses. This is the way the team they're playing defense is that these are the three matchups where the mesh point would occur to where so-and-so has to run when i had georgetown good ends good here's a here's a good example georgetown runs a princeton offense you need to know your teams okay from ten thousand feet you all need to know your teams you all have the luxury of a video even at the high school levels definitely at the college levels always watch your teams coaches in college remember this at the college level Coaches recruit players to fit their style of coaching. They have the freedom to search the country and choose players that fit their coaching schemes. In professional football, teams change based on who they draft. And NFL teams draft the best player when it comes time to draft. So you go from Joe Flacco in Baltimore with the Ravens to Lamar Jackson. So NFL teams, professional teams change based on personnel they draft. Coaches in college draft or recruit players that fit their, their scheme. So John Thompson runs the Princeton offense, right? The Princeton offense is a man-to-man -man screen, pick and roll motion offense. If Georgetown's playing somebody, what can't happen and I'm empathetic to Georgetown's preparation. 
Not that I'm going to cheat. I need to know what did John Thompson and George Tom do for the last 48 hours. And I don't have to watch his practices. I have to just think like a somebody that is a very important part of this contest. What did he do the last two days to prep for a game I'm working tonight? He ran that offense against Jim Beheim and Syracuse's two, three match defense. What can happen if John Thompson's going to be able to run his offense tonight? They can't hold his cutters, right? If it's just a shirt grab that takes a half a step away from his cutter tonight, he can't run that offense. So when they hold a cutter tonight, even if it's a kind of a technical hold, but it's there, I'm getting that whistle because he can't play without that play being run correctly. And I'm not cheating because it's a foul. But at the same time, if his big guy comes up to the free throw line extended and his guard starts to drive too quick before the big guy gets set to set that screen and that big guy is not fully set when that collision occurs, I'm taking that possession from you. Because in order for you to win, you got to run this screen and this roll offense. And I'm going to not let them hold your cutters or tug his shirt. But you're not going to bend it at all either with your screens tonight. And if he looks and goes, are you kidding me? And, and then to say, yep. And you get down the other end and say, they're going to set screens tonight and you're not going to hold cutters. When you say that to coaches, cause you know what they run, what do you think that would tell you if you were a coach and an official came to you and said that, how much mad respect would you have for that ref thinking he or she studied what we do. They know what we do. That's how much they already put into this that changes the level of who you are. Always study your teams. And then if you have the opportunity, study the two or three matchups that are going to be the difference in this game individually, right? So now we're going to get those things right. Don't put fouls on big, on important, don't put technical fouls, little too technical fouls on people that cause coaches to have to sub. And when you put the second foul on a player in a basketball game in the first half, that coach immediately has to make a decision when that second foul occurs. Am I going to roll the dice and play this player for the rest of the first half and risk the third foul on the front end of this thing? Or do I have to change everything I did because of this? That's why that first foul at 1953 in the first half that's a ticky-tack can be the thing that causes the entire game to change. And we as officials need to understand the magnitude of that as soon as the basketball goes up, okay? That's what that means, right? You have to know that. You have to, your awareness level has to be at that level when the ball leaves the referee's hand, you must do that. You don't, and here's why you do that. Because you decided to take the game. That's the most important thing of everybody on that court tonight's day. And you chose to take the game. And if you're not that aware, you shouldn't have taken this game. And that'll take you to a place to say humbly, we're three to 5% of every game. More than likely, it might be the biggest 3% of the entire night if I don't do what I need to do. Understand that. That's the pressure of the game. It's not the cameras. It's not 180 million. 
It has nothing to do with them. It has everything to do with you and your understanding and awareness of the minute I start making decisions tonight, that trickle down at some point is a huge play. People ask all the time, why aren't we using instant replay in football to miss these big fouls? I get news for you. When it's third and 10 from the offense is on their own two and got 98 yards to go. And it's third and 10 with 13 minutes left in the fourth quarter, first quarter of an NFL game. And somebody calls defensive holding on a bad call. And that team isn't punting from their own end zone, but get a first down. And now it's first and eight from their own eight. And they just get 20 more yards and take four minutes of game. But when they punt from their 25, the other team starts on the other 15. You have negatively affected this game for the next two and a half hours. You blew it. You blew it. That's the level of expectation that you have to go into games with, humbly knowing you're going to have those nights. And how are you going to navigate it when you know you blew that? But that's how important. That's why I chuckle in this new position. Like, can't we just use this for the big plays? I'm like, big plays? You people don't know. There's 165 plays in the NFL game. 135 of them are really big plays. The other 15 are when they take a knee or the last two seconds of the first half when they throw the bottom pounds. Every other play is the biggest play because it changes the dynamic. Same in hoops. So that's how you kind of do it, right? Without scaring yourself so much to death, like, oh my God, I messed this whole game up because I called an off the ball foul on a low down screen or something. Again, like I said, set the standard for you to be at a level that is achievable, but not easy to get to. Understand you'll never work the perfect game. Embrace your imperfection, but never use it to the detriment of your, of your ability to want to get everything right for the right reason and know that none of those things probably in this whole world of matrix will ever come to a full encompassing game but within each game when the crew thinks that way there will be these eight minutes of that game where you're like dude we were so on point like we didn't miss a thing and that's that thing that's that thing we do that's that's why i'm talking to you that's it and simple as that in my basement, you know. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that. <laughs> Got it. I'm rambling. I'm getting texts by my sweethearts upstairs. Like, I've been here for an hour. I said, I'll be right up. <laughs> Appreciate your passion, Gene. You got time to answer one more? Sure. We have a special guest here. Pedro, my daughter's uh, middle name is Rhea. So, this is awesome. I want to uh, welcome uh, Pedro and Ray. I want you to unmute. What's your question for Gene? Hey, Gene. Uh, love seeing you on TV. Uh, everyone's thanked you enough, so I won't add to that pile. No, uh, don't let me, Pedro. Make me feel at home. Your daughter is beautiful. Thank you. Appreciate it. She's a little up, a little late. Um, hey, thanks for uh, bringing up the family portion of uh, you were talking about earlier. Um, that really hit home for me uh, as a father of three kids and a wife. And, um, you know, this, this is the season where we're not home very often. And I, I made sure last night to take them to the Celtics game. Uh, well, Hawks game, now that I'm in uh, Georgia. I recently moved here from uh, Boston. Um, and uh, <laughs> the kids were up late last night, and my wife had to take them all to school this morning. And 
she was cursing my name like that was a great idea to take the kids to a late night game and now they're all cranky this morning so uh, i figured you'd get a good chuckle out of that um, uh, to my question though uh, can you talk about um maybe the difficulty or maybe some good stories on your current role right i mean you're basically critiquing your fellow peers maybe some good friends of yours on the field you know they're coming to you and they're like hey gene do you got what do you got on that play yeah you know uh, can you talk can you speak to that and like obviously i'm sure some of your peers don't hold you to anything because obviously you got a different angle and you've seen it three or four times before you have a say but can you, can you speak to that a little bit yeah and i appreciate the question you know it it, it um you know, when I when I was on the field and there were a few analysts, there weren't as many now. I, I empathize with the guys and gals on the fields and courts now by having these so-called analysts sitting there and passing some judgments to them. Um, but, you know, officials, really, really good officials are okay when they miss a play if, if you acknowledge the fact that they missed a play um, because they already know they missed it. And the piling on from the 180 million Twitters don't bother you when you know you missed it. You know what I mean? Like it's noise. And at that level, it has to become noise because the only things that ever bothered me about the noise, and I had some tough situations and decisions in my career with the Calvin Johnson catch, the Des Bryant catch, the index card game where my children were getting death threats and you know maybe you got to have people you know one you know you're, you're getting you're getting crazy texts and emails right like i know where your daughter works things like that it's a scary world because those people are innocent um so when i took this role i have to be honest with you pedro i'm one of the reasons that i really took the role and probably the main reason other than being home now for Lisa and her four children and my three children that are traveling abroad, but my son handles my social media, one of my older children. I engage in with him on the weekends, so I am sharing the weekends in New York with him. My other son is a, is, is a really good small college basketball official that works for RefQuest Plus. Uh, he works in my studio as well now. So now I am winning on what I call the back end, Pedro, which I promised my children I would do for all the sacrifices they made on the front end, like your daughter's making now and your other children. Uh, so that was a, it was a really nice transfer for me in that regard, where I could not believe it's still surreal to me that a little poor kid from Western Pennsylvania, you know, seven brothers and sisters and hoping the tomatoes grew in the garden so we could have spaghetti sauce through the winter now is getting picked up in a limousine with his three children and going to Manhattan every week in CBS studios. So it's a surreal moment and I will never undervalue the humility of just having the opportunity. But in the raw sense, what I try to do, uh, which isn't easy all the time because I don't get the luxury to elaborate this long on plays and in that window of time, right? You know, you get a play, you get 40 seconds, I'm scrubbing that play as fast as I can so that I don't misspeak on the play. If it's a judgment situation, the first thing I do in either sport is I morph into the covering officials angle. I morph immediately into whoever the official is on the football field that was primary on that play. 
I watched that play in real time, looking for any possible angles that could have caused him or her not to see something that we all blatantly see in slow motion, frame by frame, 10 seconds later, while the world sits and tweets how blind they are and how Mets are ruining games. And then when I get my airtime, if I can speak to that portion on the front end, understanding that when they show the second replay that it's in everyone's living room, that it's a blatant miss. It's the face mask that happened the other night in the Eagles game, if you watch that, right? Well, that official that didn't see that is Jeff Bergman. He's worked 34 years in the NFL. He's the most storied line of scrimmage official in the history of the NFL. He had two offensive linemen stand up weirdly enough and just turn right at the time that face mask happened in three quarters of a second. And then the face is back and the ball's out. And that's how quick that thing happens. There is a human element that I think I have to continuously, much to the chagrin of the haters on anti-social media that I'm protecting the fraternity. But I think when those places show up, uh, you, say, you say the truth. I know if he or she had the luxury that I have right now to look at this four times, the chances of them changing their mind on that play are probably pretty high. It's a fast game and you only get one crack, but it's a miss. And I think you have to say that as well. You have to say, look, a miss is a miss. Um, I don't seek the plays in this position. My, my fellow brethren know that. Every time I watch a game, all of you are in this business. Whatever sport it is that you have become more expertise in, when you watch them now, you're not watching those games entertaining-wise anymore. You can't. You, you ruined that. You're reffing them. You're watching off ball and stuff if you're a basketball ref, right? If you're a deep wing official and you're watching an NFL game, you're watching the action on the widest receiver because we're reffing. Um, so, so I think this platform has to, at some point, have the credibility to say a miss is a miss, allow our color analysts to have a little bit of that kind of coach feel like, you know, we got to get this right. Uh, but then there's another window of this. And I try to do it with my son on social media. I only put four or five tweets out a week two or three have to be put out because it's a big play and a big miss and and it's what the networks it's how this thing operates but then there's two or three that don't get as many likes that are what a great job by the back judge on this play you have no idea how hard this is to see that catch and see that foot hit in real time that gets three likes show a miss roughing the passer you're trending uh, so it's the world, but I'm not changing what I want, what, what, what I feel my role is. And that's the appreciation of this third team in the sporting events. It's, it's challenging to do in the 10 second windows. I can do a little bit of it on social media. Uh, if I, it, you know, just because the content's going out, whether they want it to or not. Um, but really the fraternity has been really appreciative. I think of it. Because what we're trying to do is say, look at, uh, this is hard. That's another one wherever, if Carl didn't disappear yet, and for all of you, look, when the crowd gets crazy in your close proximity gyms, okay, and you know where they're at, 
And when you get really good at this business, you'll know what row and what seat they are, and you'll never have to see them, but you'll know just by the voice, that guy is in the third row, four rows in from the aisle. I know he is, and I have yet to make eye contact, and we're 15 minutes in the game. Have fun with it. Have a little levity with that. And be good enough to know that if you time it right, you'll be able to spin on one timeout when he's in mid-sentence and can't stop the sentence. And when he's in mid-sentence and you're on the court looking down and you hear him, and then when he's in mid-sentence, just turn and look. Don't just say anything, just turn and look and watch him or her freeze. And what I used to do, and maybe this isn't good for public consumption, I would stare at the person next to him or her. And I would go, you're with, you're with him. And I'd look down. And usually two or three around would chuckle because you're engaging. You're not demeaning. I'm just looking. Like you, and I'd go, really? And I'd turn away. And never, and that would be it, but it, it was the human element, right? Or there were times on the baseline when the guys would be really screaming and I would just get, look and try to take a bead of sweat off with my finger and flick it on the court and then look up at them and just look them dead in the eye and go, oh, this is hard, okay? Because I knew how close they were to the court and they can see those 10 athletes freaking running like they're running 15 feet in the air and you know how hard this is. So every once in a while, I might just look at you like guy to guy and go, oh, this is hard. Okay? That's all I'm saying tonight. No, this isn't easy tonight. Be nice to me. This is hard. And they become human. They, they become human. Um, and I think the same applies for this position. You know, we could go out. I could watch every NFL game. I see 10 mistakes a game on grading. Is it my job to tell the country about eight of them? No. It's my job to tell them the ones that jump out. It's my job to try to get in and give them the compliment when plays are really hard and this is really hard and a little bit of appreciation of what the men and women do that officiate is kind of the bigger goal now, which is why I took the job, Pedro. And that's, you know, I got to mentor and what Paul is doing and this whole mentoring thing that you all are doing. This is the this is the diamond in the business. This is it doesn't matter what level you ever ref. I can promise you it's a dog and pony show, okay, that has bigger audiences and more electronics and all this exposure. And for what it's worth, if you're into it, some public recognition, I guess, which is not the best thing in the world to have, I can assure you. But at the end of the day, every single one of them is this beautiful universe, which is this game that everybody prepped for from the moment they woke up that day. Whether it's a high school athlete that went to the pep rally on Friday, or whether it's the NFL player that prepped for Monday night football. When you wake up game day morning, there's something different about that day. All of us share in that, in this mentoring process to share this stuff with each other and to bring new people from completely different angles of life and different personalities together in some crazy passion that you really want to voluntarily put yourself in an extremely high intense environment 
where grown professional adults act adolescent in front of thousands of people and none of it is scripted and you will not be recognized for anything that you do for this entire contest unless you make a mistake and you can't wait to do this think about what that makes us think about the integrity and the honor of what that makes our fraternity that's why you help every partner in every game even if you really don't want to go have a beer with him or her or pop with him or her after the day that's irrelevant this thing is so deeply philosophically tied into who we are as people that you will learn more about everything you do in your life if you get into this in that way and appreciate what that all means and what you are voluntarily doing and then ask yourself, why am I doing it? For a check. Don't do it for the check. It'll never pay. And I made a lot of money doing it. Was never for the check. You know what I mean? Like it was for the challenge. Like, can you crank this up five nights a week and then not take the weekends off, go do an NFL game and then crank it up for five more days next week in this environment every night? with this pressure, knowing you're gonna make some mistakes along the way, but it's all good because I'm here for the right reasons. Like, and then to have these mentorships at this level, this is like priceless stuff, man, I'm telling you. And I promise you, if you stay engaged for the right reasons, don't let the politics, don't let the postseason, let the jewelry for the jewelers. You don't work games for rings, patches, and watches. You work, you want to work the hardest contest that's played that night. Don't tell me where the biggest game is. Tell me where the hardest game is. Tell me where the most decisions are going to be made tonight. That's the one I want. I wanted the AFC and NFC championship, not the Super Bowl. Because they're going to kill each other to get to the Super Bowl. When we get to the Super Bowl, they get a week worth of endorsements. And it's the big show. You play the AFC and NFC championship in somebody's house. It's a home team. And I'm going to hurt you tonight to get to this Super Bowl. Now, that's the game I want. That's the hardest game. I want the hardest game, right? I want the biggest challenge. Not because I want to be seen on TV. I don't care if they play it outside my backyard. I swear to God, I don't. You know what I mean? I want those decisions tonight. I want that pressure tonight. That's why I'm doing that. Now, my psychologist tells me that I can let that go now that I'm no longer on the field in court. But I will say this to you humbly. There's some pressure in what I do. I love the little window of time I get to navigate something, understanding that when I do speak now, I can't miss. Tony Romo can miss on a ref call. That's not what they pay Tony Romo to do. The rules analysts can't miss. You get about 98% here. You know what I'm saying? And you got to be ready to go quick and get done because before they break that huddle, Jim Nance has to talk about Tom Brady. Okay. I'm giving you 12 seconds. Now let's go. And you got 30 to figure out whether that ball went off the ground or not. Are they going to rule it that way? Is the NFL seeing it the same way you are? You're about to tell everybody you think this is catching. This referee is about to go out there and say it isn't, you know, or something like that. So it has nothing to do with all of that. But from 5,000 feet, it's the same damn thing I did when I was on the field of court. Throw me this pressure in this little condensed window where I'm going to be totally scrutinized for only the mistakes. 
I can't wait. And whenever I say something positive about the fraternity, I'm going to be laughed at for being a fraternity guy who protects everybody because these guys just slept in a Holiday Inn Express last night. And they're terrible, you know? And that's the beauty of it. Like, that's that's it. That's the reason. You know what I mean? And uh, and now to be able to do this, but be able to have the time not to mentor on the ground with the foot soldiers any longer, but have a chance to reach out and talk to all of you from Arizona to Waynesburg, Pennsylvania, to Minnesota, to Wisconsin. You gotta be shitting me, man. I'm like, I've hit the lotto so many times, it's ridiculous. And the goal now is we need people to ref, not, we need them to ref because the payback to this, it's gigantic for people, for us as people. And uh, I'm like, I'll never quit, you know, giving back to this because it's, it is what that is. It is what that is. It, and the fraternity is bigger than all of us too, right? And that's what's fun about it. Just a chess piece on a board. And I'm, on, I'm in the first two spots too. I'm not even in the back row. I'm the little one with a little knob on his head. If you move, only can move two spaces the first move, that's who I am, you know? <laughs> phenomenal work, Gene. Um, we want to thank you for your time. Thank you for drawing so many parallels from officiating to life. Thank you for what you're doing for officials to um, help the uh, shortage. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and experience with us. And uh, I look forward to seeing you this Thursday. And I just want to say on behalf of the whole community, um, we consider you crown family for life. And uh, we really appreciate you. Thank you, because what you're doing right here, Paul, is special, beyond special. And all of you that are involved are equally as special, but that's an extra star in my book, Paul, because I know why you're doing it. It's like, it's not a self-serving thing here. It's deeper than that. It shows just, just in the way you are. And we've only seen each other for an hour and 51 minutes and talked for another 30, but it's, it's real and authentic. God bless all of you. Please keep doing it. I love all of you. Don't ever stop doing this and never take it personal. We're the ones that control the game. Just don't let anybody know. <laughs> I'm out. Thank you for listening to the Crown Refs Podcast. Serve the game.